The arrest of Evan Gershkovich for espionage has sent shockwaves around the world. It's utter rubbish. Evan was doing what reporters do. He was out there gathering news, providing an eyewitness account of what's going on inside Russia. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Meanwhile, Berlin has become a hub for exiled Russian journalists. There's three biggest issues. <laughs> the first one is depression. Everyone is depressed and struggling with it. The second one is German migration laws. And the third thing is how to work. <laughs> Plus, Twitter's changing relationship with the news, starting with why NPR left the platform after they were labeled as state-funded. It essentially challenged the credibility of our content, and that's just something that I'm unwilling to compromise. We just don't think it's a viable platform for news content anymore. It's all coming up after this. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. This week, we had a mother of a big old leak. Around 100 pages of classified slides and briefing materials from the Pentagon have now been found floating around the internet. The documents range from briefing slides mapping out Ukrainian military positions to assessments of international support for Ukraine. The leaked documents surfaced on Discord, an online messaging app popular with gamers. An anonymous user called OG posted them in a small chat room of about 25 people, the kind of place where you'd expect to find obscure posts about video game tactics and some unsavory memes. The evidence suggests that OG wasn't an activist or a firebrand, just kind of a show-off, seen on video shouting racist slurs while firing a gun. The documents were leaked when one server member posted them to win an argument about the war in Ukraine. After that, the leaked documents started circling around a few other private discords, including a Minecraft-themed one before leaking to 4chan. People were reading them and they were not commenting on them. There are sensitive topics, including under what circumstances Vladimir Putin might use nuclear weapons. Some materials were marked top secret. Most are considered genuine. On Thursday, the New York Times broke the news that the FBI had raided the home of the alleged culprit, a 21-year-old member of the Massachusetts Air National Guard. His unit, per our Pentagon team, would typically be handling intelligence collected by surveillance aircraft like Reaper and Predator Jones. The leak comes at a delicate time. Ukraine's spring offensive, the subject of much of the leaked documents, could be a make-or-break moment in its fight against Russian aggression. The pages expose U.S. intelligence on Russian and Ukrainian battle strategies, munitions counts, and the number of casualties on both sides, a statistic journalists have found very hard to get. They show how good U.S. intelligence is, but also how opaque this conflict really is to the rest of us. Reporting on the war is complex, difficult, and dangerous. On the media producer Molly Schwartz brings us the story of the arrest of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich, the first time a U.S. reporter has been held on espionage charges in Russia since the Cold War, and the challenges right now of reporting on Russia from Russia. For the first months of the war, Valerie Hopkins, a New York Times correspondent who is usually based in Moscow, was in Ukraine. Then she went back to Moscow to cover the conflict from there. Evan became one of my closest friends when I went back after the war started in August last year. We got very close because it's a very difficult environment to work in. And at first, a lot of people were leaving. Then the censorship laws came out. Then they started charging people with the censorship laws. 
The Russian government passed several censorship laws in early March 2022, one against spreading so-called fake news and another against discrediting the Russian army. Those new laws made it really risky to be a journalist in Russia. And so most of the journalists left the country. Evan and Valerie were a couple of the only American correspondents still working there. I talked a lot with Evan about what a privilege it was and what a responsibility we both felt to be there at this time and do this work. And among the many things that are so heartbreaking about this is that Evan felt a real sense of journalistic mission of living through historic times. Being in Moscow, being in Russia does actually really feel every day like a time when you can see how society is changing, how a country is changing before your eyes. And being able to chronicle it is really important. It was afternoon on Wednesday, March 29th, when Valerie noticed something might be wrong. We had actually a group chat with another American journalist where we basically talked almost every day. And I had sent him a message in the afternoon. And I remember going to bed on Wednesday and thinking, like, this is really weird. Why didn't he answer with something? He normally actually answers very fast. Our security folks raised the alarm that they were unable to reach him. Gordon Faircloth is the Wall Street Journal's world coverage chief. He oversees all of the journal's foreign correspondents, including Evan. His phone stopped pinging, and he missed one of his regularly scheduled call-ins. And so that then set off a scramble to try to find him. Evan has lived and worked in Russia as a journalist for almost six years. He joined the Wall Street Journal in January 2022, just about a month before Russia invaded Ukraine. One of the first stories he did after the war started was traveling to the border of Belarus and Ukraine, where he was the only Russian journalist, to my knowledge, to witness the very large number of Russian casualties coming out from the offensive efforts around Kiev and saw caravans of ambulances and wounded Russian soldiers being loaded into trains to be shipped back to hospitals in Russia. Right. And that was a major story because Russia had been downplaying the casualties of its soldiers during the war. And Evan was the first American journalist, I think, to see on the ground proof of these casualties. That's right. And those were in the very early days when we really weren't sure what was happening on the ground, you know, and it was one of the first significant indications that the Russians were having trouble. It wasn't until the day after Evan missed his regular check-in that the journal found out what had happened to him. We didn't manage to find him until the next morning when the FSB released a statement that he had been detained. Russia's security agency says it has arrested a U.S. journalist working for the Wall Street Journal in Moscow on charges of espionage. The Federal Security Service, or FSB, accused him of, quote, acting on instructions from the American side to collect information about the activities of one of the enterprises of the Russian military-industrial complex that constitutes a state secret. He was charged and entered a plea of not guilty in a Moscow courtroom. Nobody was allowed in that courtroom, no journalist, not even his own lawyer. Gershkovich is being detained at the notorious Lefortovo prison on the outskirts of Moscow. He is the first American reporter to be arrested on espionage charges in Russia since 1986. He carries a sentence of 20 years in prison. It's utter, it's utter rubbish. The Wall Street Journal's editor-in-chief, Emma Tucker, on CNN. Evan was doing what reporters do and what he did very well. He was out there gathering news, talking to people, reporting, providing an eyewitness account of what's going on inside Russia. The journal made the decision to lift the paywall from all of Evan's past articles and put out photos of Evan that people can post on social media with the hashtag I stand with Evan. I think it's important for us, you know, to keep the spotlight on Evan. The White House agrees. On April 10th, the State Department pronounced that Evan Gershkovich was, quote, wrongfully detained. This is important because it means they see him as the equivalent of a political prisoner. And it shifts his case to the office of the Special Presidential Envoy for Hostage Affairs. New laws around hostage cases were passed in 2020 and codified by President Biden just last summer. It means that there will be more tools available for Evan's case, like the ability to put pressure on the host country and share intelligence with Evan's family. It means that they are going to use a lot of resources to make sure that Evan gets back safe and sound on the U.S. soil. Goldnoza Saeed is the Europe and Central Asia Program Coordinator for the Committee to Protect Journalists, or CPJ. 
Ivan Gershkovich is a hostage and Russia, the Russian government, is going to use him as a bargaining chip. There is plenty of precedent for what Evan and his editors at the journal are going through. Washington Post reporter Jason Rezaian was taken hostage by Iran in 2014. And Marty Baron, the editor of the Washington Post at the time, said he considered it his job to be a regular presence on TV, radio, and in the press. Rezaian was released in a prisoner exchange in 2016. And a lot of media outlets have reported about potential prisoner exchange in Ivan Gershkovich's case, and they've been throwing different names. Which also happened last year, when WNBA player Brittany Griner was tried on drug charges and sentenced to nine years in prison. She was then freed in exchange for Victor Boot, a Russian arms dealer being held by the U.S. But Saeed says that even when everything is going according to plan— that isn't a guarantee of immediate results. Brittany Griner was held for 294 days, Jason Rezaian for 544. The case of Jason Rezaian just shows how important it is to keep the attention on the case because we as journalists know very well how news cycle works. Meanwhile, the Russian public is being exposed to a very different media campaign. If you look at how Russian state media reported on Evan Gershkovich's case, you would think that he was already a convicted spy, as if Evan didn't have a right to a presumption of innocence guaranteed by the Russian constitution. State Duma member Andrei Asayev, on one of Russian state TV's political talk shows, said that journalism is an ideal cover for a spy. He says it was the West that started a half-cold, half-hot war against Russia, and that Evan Gershkovich is a captured spy of a state at war with Russia, caught on Russia's territory. He is undoubtedly a prisoner, and prisoners are sometimes subject to exchange. So, from all that, it is clear that the case is very political, especially because the immediate gain of the Russian authorities is to silence Evan and his reporting. It's very unusual for nation-states to detain foreign correspondents, even in countries with a bad record of violating press freedom. According to CPJ's latest prison census, the vast majority of the 363 journalists imprisoned around the world were locked up by their own government. So we are seeing this ramping up of repressions against journalists in Russia. Right now we have, I believe there are 31 journalists persecuted for anti-war activities, anti-war stance. Dan Storyev is the managing editor of English language publications at OBD Info, a Russian human rights group. We kind of have this repressive iceberg, as I like to put it, right, where at the bottom you have this long burning stamping out of journalism, of freedom of press, of civil society in Russia. You can be in prison up to 15 years for saying something that is not in accordance to Russian official position. Maria Kuznetsova is the spokesperson for OBD Info. And we have a lot of public leaders and journalists who are accused on that and face such huge criminal charges because of just one thing they said. OVD Info has recorded around 200 criminal charges brought against people for violating the fake news laws and around 6,000 minor offenses brought against people for, quote, discrediting the Russian military. And these have been brought against people for posting no to war or Ukrainian flag or even just a peace sign or a picture of a dove. We had cases when people were holding Leo Tolstoy book, War and Peace, and that book was considered as a discrediting Russian army. And the police wrote in the protocol that Leo Tolstoy did not support the Tsar regime. And because this person was holding his book, it means that he does not support the current regime in Russia. We had a guy who wrote special military operation, but he just put quotation marks. And the police wrote in the protocol that by putting quotation marks, he was mocking the name, and that means he was discrediting the Russian army. And then just this past February, Maria Ponomarenko, a Russian journalist, was sentenced to six years in prison for posting that it was Russian planes that had bombed a theater full of children in Mariupol. 
Alexei Moskolyov, a single father, was recently arrested because his 13-year-old daughter drew an anti-war picture at school. His daughter was put into an orphanage and then given to her estranged mother. We're seeing the Kremlin kind of reverting to the Soviet playbook. Dan Storyev. There is a Soviet saying that's kind of hard to translate, but it basically goes along the lines of, if you have a man, you will find an article to charge that man under. Right? And so we kind of coming back to that where it doesn't really matter what article are they going to persecute you under, prosecute you under. They're going to persecute you, prosecute you anyway. And now with Evan, now this extends to the foreigners as well. It's now about two weeks since Evan was detained. And I think every single day is probably incredibly psychologically and emotionally difficult. Valerie Hopkins of the New York Times knew it was risky to be working as a journalist in Russia. But she told me that Evan's arrest partly came as such a shock because of the espionage charges. Foreign correspondents have to get their accreditation extended by the Russian government every three months. If they really believed that Evan posed a risk, they could have chosen to not extend his accreditation, which effectively would have, anyways, ended his ability to report from inside Russia. But instead, they chose to to do this escalation, which I think, you know, probably had the chilling effect that it intended. We withdrew our bureau chief. Evan's boss, Gordon Fairclough. I'm not sure when I would consider it safe for us to have someone back on the ground in Russia. And that, of course, makes it harder for American audiences to know what's happening in Russia, right? Particularly at a time of, I think, pretty significant diplomatic tension between Washington and Moscow. Having fewer avenues for mutual understanding is not a good thing. The New York Times says that after it publicly moved most of its bureau out of the country last year, it's been sending journalists into Russia regularly to report stories. But it currently has no reporters based there. When I was asking myself about what price I was willing to pay to do journalism in Russia, <laughs> in Russia of 2022, you know, I did sit and think a lot about whether or not it would be worth it if I wound up in jail. Throwing journalists in jail is a hallmark of authoritarian countries which the Soviet Union was and today's Russia has become. It's a history that Evan knows well. His parents emigrated to the U.S. from the Soviet Union. Both of us grew up as the children of immigrants. We bonded over being bilingual kids, loving Russian bands like Kinoa, and also the Backstreet Boys. Like shortly before he was arrested, I remember we went and did karaoke, actually. You know, we sang Russian and American songs. Kino, a band Evan loves, was this underground Soviet rock band. I keep thinking about a Kino song called April. The lyrics go, so much pain and scars, it's difficult to move. And April will die and be born once again. I listened to this song a lot when I was in Russia last year on a journalism fellowship. When the war started, I was forced to leave the country. And in the chaos of that moment, I latched onto this song with its acknowledgement of pain and message of rebirth, like a kind of North Star. There's an email address that people can use to write Evan letters in prison, freegershkovich at gmail.com. I hope that if people do, this is the message he receives. For On the Media, I'm Molly Schwartz. Coming up, an exiled Russian reporter in Berlin. This is On the Media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. 
Go to zbiotics.com slash OTM to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash OTM and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex. Of bugs. (laughs) Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. The day before Evan Gershkovich was arrested, I was in Berlin where I interviewed a 27-year-old exiled Russian reporter named Nikita Kondratyev. At least a thousand Russian journalists have left the country in the years since Russia invaded Ukraine, according to a legal aid group called the Net Freedoms Project. In large part, they left because, as we just heard, it's pretty much impossible to do journalism there. Novaya Gazeta Europe is a new outlet formed by former staffers at the now-suspended Moscow-based Novaya Gazeta, one of Russia's most prominent and courageous independent publications. Kondratyev, who once worked for Novaya Gazeta, now works for the European version in Berlin. When we met up, it seemed he really didn't want to be there. He was visibly tense as we moved from one noisy coffee house to another and then finally outside where he relaxed a little and could smoke. He talked about what he was reporting on, like the illegal divisions the mercenary Wagner group had stocked with Russian prisoners, about the state of Russia's air defense and more. Mostly, I was after how he worked and how he felt about it. He started his story back in Moscow. The war broke out on the 24th of February. We kept on working for a month under military censorship, of course, under all the threats. I mean, if if you're writing something that is not going along with the line of the Kremlin, you'll be in prison. So as a young Russian citizen who can be mobilized to the armed forces, of course, I had just two choices. If not imprisonment, then frontline. Yeah, so we fled. What sorts of stories are you reporting and for whom are you reporting them? For Russian citizens, obviously. How do you reach them? As we did it before, uh, you know, Russia is not some kind of a valley of silence. (laughs) Yeah, people still use VPN. Uh, YouTube isn't blocked yet, so you can reach them through YouTube, retelling your stories uh, in videos and podcasts. I know that you're covering stories about the war. I wonder how you're getting that information. There are different types of stories. I mean, if we are talking about stories from the battlefield, we we do not have any reporters in Ukraine because it's risky for Russian journalists to work in Ukraine because, how shall I put it? (laughs) Russian citizens are not welcome in Ukraine. Russian journalists are not welcome in Ukraine. Russian male journalists are not welcome in Ukraine because they can be spies Russia has an obligatory military service, so lots of Russian male journalists have military experience. And that is, of course, a problem for Ukraine. So female Russian journalists can enter Ukraine and work where, but it's risky because frontline can change any day. And if you get caught by the Russian military, they want imprison you, they will just kill you. And torture a bit. I hear you. So so how are you getting your information? Yeah. The biggest part of that work is open source intelligence. Right. Using sources among uh, Russian uh, so-called siloviki. If you know the term, that means anyone involved in the law enforcement forces, military forces. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you, you need some sources in Russia and some stringers to cover some topics because there are some security issues about people who are working for us in Russia. For Novaya Gazeta Europe. 
not know Viagas yet? For both. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, there are people working for Nova Gazette and for Nova Gazette Europe. Uh, they're in uh, Russia. They are not interconnected. Mm-hmm. I must say that. <laughs> yes, I understand. I wonder whether uh, the Russian authorities will make the same distinction you're so careful to make they here. They won't. Can you give me an example of some of the challenges of the work here in Berlin? Uh, it could be... Uh, unethical for Western journalists, but, uh, you know, in Russia, personal information is sold for a dime. It's easy to purchase information. Russians put it up for sale. Uh, You know, before the war, we tried to stick to all those uh, internationally recognized principles of clear and transparent journalism, but since the war started, I'm speaking for myself, but I personally think that the Russian state can go and f*** yourself and I can purchase any information that can help me investigate what those morons are doing. So I feel free to do whatever I can to find this information, to analyze this information and to publish this information if it helps to document war crimes that my not my government, but the government that basically occupied Russia is doing. Mm -hmm. What sorts of stories are you focused on? Give me a few examples, if you can. Uh, I interviewed a Russian deserter who fled the war. He was serving as a person who deactivates uh, explosives. In the Chechen Republic, he deactivated all the explosives left in the Republic uh, after two Chechen wars. But then he was recruited to the war in Ukraine. Of course, he couldn't say no, because he would be put in prison. So he he was in war, then he fled. Of course, I had to fact-check everything he told me, and I purchased some leaked information about mobile phones of those uh, commanding officers of his regiment. I called them, asked them some questions. So, What's the most important story that you think you've done since you came here? That was last summer, I guess. That was a big investigation on... Uh, what illegal divisions Russia has on the front line. The Wagner group, they had just uh, entered the war and there were other groups of insurgents such as Rusic, the neo-Nazi battalion uh, in Donetsk region, Russian neo-Nazi battalion, uh, such as Ahmad, that special task force formed by Kadyrov, Ramzan Kadyrov, the head of the Chechen Republic, and that's basically his uh, personal guard, but they do not have any legal status. Do you intend on going back to Russia at some point? course, as, as fast as possible, but uh, yeah, mobilization is still ongoing, and uh, oh, I didn't know what will happen next, but even if our regime will collapse uh, one way or another, it won't be peaceful, democratic Russia at once. There will be some tough period, and I do not know if I want to partake. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, lots of militant groups they are not connected to government in any way. They can conduct their own violent policy. Can you tell me a little bit about life in Berlin for journalists like you, exiled from their country? The, there is a tremendous sense of displacement, of course. Uh, uh, and considering the fact that the war is ongoing and it isn't just a war with some distant country that's war against the country that lots of us considered our uh, motherland as well before the war, before 2014, I guess, uh, Ukraine has never been an enemy to anybody in Russia. I'm not talking about, yeah, we are the same nation, we are the same country, that's but my relatives, lots of other people's relatives are Ukrainian. We all, in some extent, have some connection, yeah, and 
lots of friends there. So, of course, it hits you if you realize what kind of war it is. Everyone is frustrated, every journalist, every Russian refugee, I guess. I want to think so. Because <laughs> if they are not, uh, I, I don't know where their feelings are, <laughs> where their heart is. Yeah, of course, as it all started, we were frustrated, but we kept on working. We worked a lot, and it helped us not to realize uh, what's going on with ourselves. We, uh, yeah, when you're writing about it, when you try to analyze some things, try to investigate something, you're in the work with your head, but uh, as you stop working and alone with yourself, with your thoughts and your feelings, then you understand how awful it is, what is happening and who is doing this. Your neighbor, everyone from your hometowns, yeah, those people who were, who were near you all the time, they are doing it. That's a tough thing about it. Are you in touch with other refugee journalists here? Of course there is a diaspora, I would say. <laughs> uh, in Berlin there are lots of uh, places where uh, we can gather, yeah, communicate. Uh, uh, I guess I shouldn't ask where. That's common knowledge. I won't specify, but... <laughs> if FSB officers would want to find us, they would find us, but why would they want to... <laughs> When you hang out with other exiled journalists, what's the most common cause of complaint or distress? There are three main topics, of course. The first one is depression. Everyone is depressed and struggling with it. The second one is German authorities, German migration laws, because the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Annalena Baerbock, if I'm not mistaken, she publicly told that uh, Russian uh, journalists and dissidents in exile are welcome here and that the entire process of legalization will be easier for them. But it took some time to simplify the procedure. And what's the third thing? And the third thing is how to work. Because... <laughs> uh, uh, now there is some kind of a stalemate uh, on the front line and uh, the main topic we are covering nowadays is what's going on in Russia, what's going on between uh, elites in the government, what's going on with the mobilization, what's going on with the armed forces, I mean with shipments from China and so on, with the entire anti-missile defense system in Russia, and of course, what's going on in prisons. They were emptying out the prisons to throw them into the battles. There is 666 uh, penal colonies in Russia, and yeah, 666, and half a million of prisoners, almost half a million, so they're not emptying them out. I exaggerated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Still, they have been a presence on the front lines, reportedly used as cannon fodder. They are indeed used as cannon fodder, but the Wagner group stopped doing it. We are trying to figure out why. <laughs> Maybe too many of them are just running away. No, they're not running away. They're being shot if they try to uh, run away. That's almost impossible to run away from the front line nowadays. There were rumors that the defense ministry started to do it instead of the Wagner group. And they indeed started to do that. I've got some sources among prisoners. There are cell phones and penal colonies as well. One last question. How sustainable is this for you? Can I be frank? You seem a little bit stressed out. Why not? My, my country uh, has waged the war. Why wouldn't I be stressed out? I don't know. Yes. No. Uh. How long do you think you can do this? I don't know. No idea. Uh, I cannot foresee a <laughs> future. I can plan my life for next 10 hours, I guess, <laughs> or, or a week at least. I don't know what will happen next month if uh, there will be a, a second massive wave of mobilization if, in Russia, if Russian towns will be attacked. Russia is losing this war and my 
greatest concern nowadays is that Russian cities will be under a massive attack. I realized that that's a logical outcome. That Russian cities would be put under attack? Two hours ago, a Ukrainian unmanned UAV crashed in Moscow. Ukrainian UAVs are crashing in Russian towns once or twice a week. Now they are mocking Russian military, but any day it can turn into a real UAV war. I'm so grateful that you talked to me. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Nikita Kondratyev is a reporter for Novaya Gazeta Europe. Thanks to the American Academy in Berlin for their support in producing this conversation. Coming up, public radio stations fly the coop. This is On the Media. On the Media is brought to you by Zbiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? Zbiotics Pre-Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. Zbiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. Zbiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com/otm to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com/otm and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. The collapse of Twitter has been prophesied for a while, more so since Elon Musk took the reins in late October. But this week felt a little different. NPR says it's leaving Twitter. This comes after Twitter labeled NPR's account as state-affiliated media last Tuesday. A designation traditionally that's been reserved for foreign media outlets that represent the official views of the government of those countries, like Russia's RT or China's Xinhua. Then this week... That was changed to, quote, government-funded media. It essentially challenged the credibility of our content, and that's just something that I'm unwilling to compromise. NPR's CEO and president, John Lansing. It's really kind of a red herring to call out the revenue, because it's not the issue. The label itself is inaccurate. Less than 1% of NPR's annual operating budget comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and federal agencies. Most of the organization's funding comes from corporate or individual sponsors. Twitter gave the BBC the same label, although that was changed this week to publicly funded media, which John Lansing would prefer. But as I write this, Twitter hasn't offered that option to NPR, and it's not clear that would matter now. The issue is whether the revenue is influencing the editorial decision-making of the news organization. And we are very serious about walling off any outside influence from money or otherwise from our editorial decision-making. But even before NPR made its exit, local public radio stations were dropping off one by one. We just don't think it's a viable platform for news content anymore. Mike Savage is the director and general manager at WEKU, the public radio station serving central and eastern Kentucky. It's also an NPR member station, as is our producing station, WNYC. WEKU left Twitter a few days prior to NPR. This is potentially a watershed moment for journalistic organizations to decide which platform is appropriate for their news. My concern is that you've got a whole group of people who are not aware of public radio world and they may stumble across something on Twitter that's news related and not be familiar with WEKU or another station or even NPR and that the label immediately causes them to pass judgment and pass that over. Our content is journalistically accurate, but if every time somebody looks at it and there's a label that is there that's not vetted, that's not correct, it's unfair, it just creates a problem. After NPR's announcement, Musk tweeted, quote, defund NPR. 
And several more member stations decided to leave Twitter as well. WBUR in Boston, KUOW in Seattle, WECA in Pittsburgh, and KUNR in Reno, just to name a few. On Thursday morning, PBS followed. Zoe Schiffer is the managing editor of Platformer, an investigative newsletter on the tech industry in Silicon Valley. She's been following Twitter closely since Musk's purchase last fall. Welcome to On the Media, Zoe. Thank you so much for having me. We posted on the on the media Twitter account about NPR's exit from the platform, and one user responded by saying, I understand this. The government-funded media label is unconscionable, but NPR's accounts on Twitter have long been my principal source of news. And you said you're concerned about the large number of people who now get their news from Twitter. Do we know how many people there are? I think that the latest survey that I read from Pew Research was that 23% of Americans use Twitter and roughly 7 in 10 users say they get news on the site. Mm -hmm. So that's a pretty considerable portion. At the same time, Mm -hmm. I think part of the reason that Twitter has had staying power, even when people have declared it dead (laughs) month after month, is the fact that the media simply cannot get off Twitter. And so I do think it's quite significant that NPR in particular is no longer going to have a presence on the site. That's not going to be affecting Twitter's bottom line at all, right? Not in the sense of NPR leaving the platform, having a direct result on the company's ability to function. But I think when we think about the end of Twitter, we're really not thinking about the platform going dark all of a sudden because of some massive technical failure. We're thinking of it becoming less relevant over time. And we think of that in a few different facets. One, you as a user log in and your For You page is just less relevant than it used to be. But two, if major media outlets are no longer on the site, the site becomes much less useful. Twitter, in a lot of ways, has lagged behind the other big tech platforms in terms of user growth. But when we look at who is on the platform, the importance of the people there is really part of its magic. It was kind of a who's who of power players across media and politics and sports. So when those people abandon the platform and go to other platforms, I think that that has real implications for Twitter. NPR has close to 9 million users on Twitter. Do you think NPR will suffer from its departure? Bobby Allen, a tech reporter for NPR, said that less than 2% of NPR's traffic comes from Twitter. So it's always been more beneficial to individual reporters than news organizations as a whole. I think as a reporter, you can really build a brand on Twitter. But NPR's brand doesn't necessarily need that same sort of attention. It has a lot of different ways to reach people and a lot of name recognition beyond Twitter as a platform. For journalists, it's very important for kind of building your personal brand if you wanted to be seen by your peers in the media as someone who was breaking news. You were breaking that news often on Twitter. And I don't think we have a real viable alternative yet. Mm-hmm. That said, there was increasingly tension between the journalists' desire to break news on Twitter and a news organization's desire to actually draw eyeballs to their website. There was a lot of press some time back when Musk decided to sell verified status. That was a kind of a badge that signified you aren't a bot or a fake account and that, in fact, you're kind of important. Here's what Musk told the BBC about yanking that status from the New York Times. I I must confess to some delight in removing the verified badge from the New York Times. That was was great. Anyway, they're, they're still alive and well. There seems to be some unabashed spite in his selected targets. What did he have against the Times or the BBC and NPR? Most other media outlets haven't had their verified status revoked, even though they haven't paid up. He keeps pushing back the deadline for when badges will be revoked, and it's it's kind of happened haphazardly so far. Elon Musk, like many leaders in Silicon Valley, has a large amount of animosity towards the media in general, and a lot of that animosity is directed at the New York Times. 
This is a debate that goes way beyond Elon Musk and really has to do with the fear that venture capitalists and other tech leaders have that a single New York Times article, kind of a hit piece, as they would call it, can bring down an entire organization that, according to them, is is doing really good work. And maybe the CEO just like made a little mistake. And I think that that fear has driven a kind of war on the media. We've seen organizations like Andreessen Horowitz, a very prominent venture capitalist group, say that they're going to start up alternative news websites. (laughs) There's been little success so far in those ventures. But I do think there's this feeling of like, hey, we don't need you and we don't want you and, and we don't want people from our organizations or the companies that we fund to even speak to the media. I don't think any news organization has the power to bring down a mogul on the basis of a little mistake. It might have the power to open up investigations and prove incredible wrongdoing. The way that we find out about wrongdoing at a company is almost always from the employees themselves. Those are the people who for years have seen bad behavior on the part of executives. And I've often tried unsuccessfully to bring that to light internally. And as a last ditch effort, they speak out and an organization is forced to change and change in positive ways. And we've seen what happens when the tech press in particular is too fawning But I think from the perspective of Musk and his peers, there was an overcorrection after Theranos. According to them, people were, you know, looking for hit pieces. Musk said during the BBC interview that he's constantly being pummeled by the media. Now, when you are the person with the biggest megaphone on Twitter and the person who is able to literally reconfigure the megaphone to make your voice always the loudest, we as journalists have a responsibility to report on what you do and why. I read that Musk has an army of fans out there looking for unfavorable coverage of their hero so he can retaliate more effectively. Is that true? I've seen this play out in the community notes forum. Mm. So Twitter has a tool that's supposed to kind of crowdsource fact-checking. And so you see it show up underneath tweets. If they contain false or misleading information, there will be a little note saying, hey, this tweet is incorrect and here's why. And that information comes from volunteer organizers who kind of in a Wikipedia-style fashion fact-check information on the platform. Mm -hmm. What we've seen since he took over is that a small army of fans has sprung up in the Community Notes forum and really looks for articles that are critical of him and tries to correct what they see as errors in even legitimate reporting. It's not always successful because there are enough people in the forums who I think are legitimately trying to use community notes in the true fact-checking sense. That said, we have seen news articles that were legitimate, that were supposedly fact-checked, but the fact-check is actually incorrect. And, And I think that just goes to show that the level of news literacy that you need to read Twitter with a critical lens the bar for that is getting higher and higher. You can't just look at a tweet or even look at a fact check and trust that what you're seeing is the truth. And this brings us back to the state-funded media question. Just last week, a group of journalists with large followings on Twitter came out against the app after Twitter decided to make it harder for users to find and view links to Substack. It's a newsletter service that many freelance reporters use. Also, smaller organizations, but they rely on Twitter often to share their work and grow their subscriber base. So Twitter made it harder by blocking access to something that's called an API, which stands for Application Programming Interface. Yes. Substack on April 5th announced that they were creating a Twitter competitor called Notes. The day after that happened, Twitter started taking steps to limit the interaction between the two platforms. So first off, Substack writers used to be able to embed tweets in their stories. They were no longer able to do that. Then all of a sudden, people couldn't interact with Substack's actual corporate Twitter account in the same way. This is 
extremely unusual. I had a scoop last month that Twitter was suppressing the corporate accounts of various competitors, including many of TikTok's corporate accounts and Instagram's. And now Substack is part of that list. It's not unusual for organizations to be preferential to content that creators make on their platform. So, for example, Instagram, you know, rewards you for posting reels and it kind of demotes your content if you're reposting TikToks to Instagram stories. But actually Mm -hmm. being vindictive and taking steps to limit a corporate account, it's unique to Elon Musk. And it resulted in very prominent Substack writers to abandon Twitter overnight. Now, like with the verified status, he wants to charge for access to the APIs, which have been used in a variety of important ways for tracking hate speech on the site, for example. So do you think it was worth it, monetarily speaking? You know, even people who disagree with him on a lot of things do say, like, hey, Twitter had a lot of people using the API for free, and it needed to kind of roll some of that back. That said, not allowing researchers to use it when Musk has said that one of the things he cares about most is supposedly transparency. That's extremely worrying. The other thing is Musk has talked repeatedly about making Twitter X, the everything app. But from a technical perspective, to do that, you need third-party developers creating apps on your platform. You can't do everything in-house. And You need an open API to do that. That was work that was underway when Musk came on board and he fired everyone on the team and closed access to the API. To me, those two things don't go together in in any comprehensive sense. So you've suggested we really need to find an alternative. There doesn't seem to be one. There was a brief romance with Mastodon, a social network some people are still advocating for, but that shift wasn't terrifically successful. Is there another platform that shows more promise as a space for news on social media? Yeah, I have a lot of respect for people who have taken a stand because of decisions that Musk has made, like labeling NPR and BBC state-funded media, and said they're no longer going to be part of the platform. Because our inability to do that is really rewarding Musk's behavior. I'm open to an alternative and I'm waiting around. But personally, I'm not willing to put up with a Mastodon-like experience to make that happen. You know, to have these apps take off in the mainstream, the user experience needs to be very seamless for a wide array of people. And Mastodon just simply is not. We're not going to solve this problem by individually getting off of Twitter or even having a new CEO come in and create stronger content moderation policies. I think the reality is that we need stronger government oversight. And yet, for all of the talk that Congress likes to have around regulating big tech, we have yet to see any real regulation. We can probably all agree that strong antitrust regulations would mean that we don't have one app that becomes so prominent and powerful that the decision of a single CEO can influence, say, an election in a way extremely worrying to a democracy. Zoe, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Zoe Schiffer is the managing editor of Platformer. On the Media is produced by Micah Lowinger, Eloise Blondio, Molly Schwartz, Rebecca Clark Callender, Candace Wong, and Suzanne Gaber, with help from Tammy George. Special thanks to the American Academy in Berlin for their support this hour. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Our engineer was Andrew Nerviano. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone. <laughs>